Now, an approach that I take that might maybe capture a little bit more of that nuance is to ask owners, if you were writing a narrative or if you were writing your pet's story, its life story, what would the final chapters look like? How would you write the death of your pet? Welcome to Dog Cancer Answers, where we help you help your dog with cancer. Hello, friend. As dog lovers, most of us here at Dog Cancer Answers are very passionate about getting treatment when our dogs get sick. That's usually what we talk about here. But in every dog's life, there comes a point where there are no longer any good options that can actually help us achieve the goals we have for their health. Pursuing care beyond that point doesn't really benefit the dog, and it's called futile care to help us unravel what futile care is and how it impacts us, our dogs, and the veterinary care team who are helping us, we're joined by Dr. Nathan Peterson, one of the authors of a recent study looking at futile care in veterinary medicine. Dr. Peterson, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. So we were just talking about how often dog lovers who are dealing with dog cancer are navigating a really emotional, troublesome terrain. They have a lot of questions. They have often have a lot of very intense feelings of shame and guilt about even having to deal with it in the first place. A lot of people blame themselves. And I imagine that they bring all of that kind of emotional intensity right into the exam room with veterinarians. And I'm sure that is a lot for not only the dog lover, but the veterinarian and the staff at the hospital to cope with. And I know you've done a lot of thinking about this topic of how do we care for dogs in extreme circumstances and how do we balance all of the competing interests in those circumstances. And I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about this survey that you recently did of veterinarians. Yeah, so I think you're exactly right. You know, end-of-life discussions regardless of what the underlying disease is, are always challenging. And I think dogs with cancer, those conversations can maybe be even a bit more challenging because sometimes owners have time to think about it. And oftentimes owners have personal experience with cancer and previous pets or with their own human loved ones. So it's, it's a topic that I think people have spent a lot of time thinking about. What I was particularly interested in and the survey that we conducted was really looking at the frequency of what, for lack of really better terminology, we sort of call feudal care. So um, what I mean by that is providing ongoing aggressive care generally to pets when we have no real expectation on the medical side that further treatment is going to benefit them at all. And, you know, as, as you mentioned, there is a lot of emotion involved and and certainly veterinarians and our technicians and nursing staff get involved in this career and profession because they really love animals and they want to help them. And it can be quite distressing when we feel like maybe the care that we're providing is prolonging suffering rather than ameliorating suffering. How often does that happen, would you say? That's a tough question. Based on the survey results that we have, the majority of respondents over half said that it happened frequently. And we sort of defined that as more than six times per year, that they were facing situations where they felt that requests 
for treatment were being made that they really didn't agree with. And this was a survey of veterinarians themselves. Yeah. About how often they're put in a position of having to make a judgment call about, do I help this dog owner feel like they're doing everything, or pet owner, do Mm -hmm. everything they can for their pet, or do I advocate for another decision to stop treatment perhaps or let the dog or cat or pet go because that's really more kind to the animal in that specific case. Yeah, we did survey veterinarians, you know, more specifically the survey ended up targeting veterinarians who are mostly specialists. Okay. Some of who were veterinary oncologists. Okay. Anecdotally, conversations with veterinarians who are not specialists experience this also. And interestingly, we found that feudal care, as we defined it, was not restricted just to care being provided in the hospital setting. It was happening at home as pets were being treated as outpatients. So I think that it really is a relevant topic for for all veterinarians. How many veterinarians did you survey? I believe we ended up having over 400 respondents. Okay. Which in terms of veterinary surveys is, is a pretty good response. And this was something you sent out like to your trade association or how did mm-hmm. you collect responses for this? Exactly. We, we ended up distributing the survey to various professional organizations through listservs. Okay. So people sort of on the behind the scenes in your veterinary networks saw this survey and decided to to answer it if it felt like something they were called to contribute to. And it, was it anonymous? It was, yeah. So they felt comfortable really answering honestly and like they weren't breaking confidentiality or... Yeah. And we didn't ask for any specific examples or, or anything. I think really mm-hmm. we were pretty straightforward and in just informing the respondents that we just want to know if this is happening and if it is, how frequently is it happening? Okay. And so over 400 veterinarians answered the survey and said that it's happening about six times a year where they're faced with this real dilemma of offering what you're calling feudal care. Meaning, I guess to me, that means as a layperson that you know that my dog does not have that much more time and that any kind of aggressive treatment is not going to give me the result I'm hoping for. And you have to make that decision to continue with that care, even though it's, quote, futile. Yeah, I think a couple of points that I I would bring up, you know, I think in terms of frequency, we did have a majority of respondents say this happened at least six times per year in their practice. What we found, though, is that virtually, I think over 99% of the respondents had indicated that they had encountered this situation during their career. So, It's happening frequently for over half of the respondents, but nearly unanimous experience for all of our respondents. I think the other thing that you begin to touch on here, and I think that it's an important distinction for us to draw really as we enter this conversation, is when I am talking about feudal care, and I think the feudal care that the respondents were envisioning is really, as you described, sort of aggressive care designed at trying to treat the underlying disease. And I think it's important that we draw a distinction here between that type of aggressive care to continue treating, to try to beat a disease 
distinguish that from hospice care or palliative care, which really is centered on eliminating some of the symptoms and signs and making pets comfortable. I think that certainly palliative care and hospice are areas that are thankfully expanding in veterinary medicine. That's not usually the type of care that's causing distress. Okay. The type of care that I found and that we found in the survey that's causing distress is requests for, you know, aggressive interventions that are likely to carry with them side effects or consequences. So, for example, somebody whose dog has failed multiple rounds of chemotherapy and in just this hypothetical, the dog owner says, well, let's try another one. Let's try another. What else can we do? Or a dog that maybe has had surgery to remove a tumor and there's a reoccurrence and there's also metastasis and it just doesn't look like this is going to be something that can be removed from the body, but requesting another surgery or like really pushing hard for more treatments that really have profound side effects and could actually reduce quality of life, especially if they don't pay off. So six times a year is like frequent in your opinion, right? Meaning six clients a year are asking for this kind of aggressive care. Yeah. To me, what it means is that, you know, once every two months, a veterinarian is faced with having a discussion or conversation with a client where they're essentially advocating for euthanasia or for a de-escalation in care. And I consider that to be frequent because, you know, I think we in in veterinary medicine are, are oftentimes maybe a little bit more comfortable on the other side of the of the conversation saying there's more things that we can try and to be in the position of saying we've tried everything and we think it's time to stop is maybe a little bit more distressing oh, that's interesting and like i said earlier certainly when we feel like we are contributing to ongoing suffering through our actions that that really is bothersome So can you tell me a little bit about how that goes? Like what's a scenario that where a lay person, someone listening to this show, if someone's listening to the show and thinking, am I asking for futile care for my dog with cancer? Where's the line? What would you tell them? How would they know that this is what they're pushing for versus asking for appropriate care? This is hard. And I think really resolving this dilemma is predicated on clear communication. So hopefully what that client is hearing is an honest opinion from the veterinarian about what they think the likelihood is of success for further treatments, what treatment options realistically are available. And hopefully they're hearing a veterinarian make recommendations that we de-escalate care and really focus on patient comfort. So if the client is hearing that clear communication and is saying, I I acknowledge that, I recognize that you're saying there's nothing more that we can necessarily do, but I want to keep going. I think that would be the scenario when we might have the opportunity for some of that recognition that maybe we're pushing the envelope too far. Okay. So something that dog lovers often say is, my vet gave up on my dog. Mm. Do you think that they're describing futile care, a futile care situation when they say that, that they're actually talking about one of these situations? That's interesting. And I would love to hear or explore more about this from the client perspective. I suspect you might be right that 
you know, when a veterinarian says there's nothing else that we can do, it's time to stop. An owner might might interpret that as my veterinarian is giving up. And, you know, I think that that's sort of where that clear communication comes in. Absolutely. It's so hard, right? Because I'm imagining myself as a veterinarian and feeling very confident about the limitations that I'm facing as a practitioner. And then the grief that this client is going through as they come up against that no. <laughs> I would imagine that it feels incredibly distressing. In fact, I wonder if this is not creating almost a moral injury for the veterinarian and their staff mm -hmm. if they sort of have to continue to give care to an animal in an assertive way that they feel is not actually in the animal's best interests. And a moral injury as defined by psychologists when they apply to like somebody who, who is in war and has to kill another human being. And yes, they're doing it because they think it's the right thing to do and they're fighting for their country, but they still carry that with them for the rest of their life. That's a moral injury, something that hurts your soul in a way. Yeah. And it, is that the level of distress that veterinarians are under when they're facing these situations? Absolutely. So it's pretty serious. It, it is. And, and my co-author has actually, she did a study that preceded the current one and they documented that in fact, this does cause a great deal of moral distress to veterinarians, more so than having discussions about owners with financial limitations. This was the number one sort of moral distressor. Wow. And, you know, what we consider moral distress is, or a moral dilemma is, you know, knowing what the right thing to do is and not being able to do it for your own morals. And certainly, you know, veterinarians who are providing care that they don't think is right, they carry that with them. Absolutely. How do you balance that? How do you balance between what does the veterinarian do? Is there a point at which you really kind of put your foot down as a veterinarian and say, I can't treat your dog anymore? I can't do this? I don't think it's right? Certainly that happens. I think that, you know, based on the results of our survey, I don't think that happens very frequently. Okay. So we had virtually 100% of veterinarians saying that they had provided this type of care. We had a strong majority saying that they believed that providing this type of care did not benefit the patient at all, but benefited the pet owner mm. in some way. By providing time for closure, by providing reassurance that everything had been tried. So balancing requests and refusals for requests of care. Based on our results, it would seem that refusing to provide what we term feudal care is, is actually infrequent. Okay, so that's really... Veterinarians don't like to do that. They don't like to say, no, I'm not going to provide this care. Yeah, I think that that's, that's also distressing, right? Mm -hmm. you, you have a relationship with a pet owner. You have, a in most circumstances or many circumstances, you have a longstanding relationship with the pet also. Right. And I don't think that any veterinarian really wants the end of a lifelong interaction to be, I'm not going to provide you care at the end of your pet's life. So I think that, you know, we feel an obligation to provide that care, maybe for a couple of reasons. One is, is just that relationship that we have with the clients and the pets. The other obligation or the other pressure to provide care 
might stem somewhat from the the legal status of pets in many states where they're considered to be property and think that that leaves veterinarians feeling that they can't realistically refuse treatment options because ultimately the pet is the owner's property and they get to decide what type of care it receives. Hmm. So I think that, you know, we're experiencing a little bit of that pressure also. That's interesting. So just like the mechanic can't tell you that you shouldn't, you know, like replace the the engine on that old car mm-hmm. because it's not going to be worthwhile. The veterinarian can't say to someone possibly if they were pushed under the law and it was reviewed in a court, couldn't actually say, no, I'm not going to care for your dog. That's interesting. The veterinarians retain the legal right to say that we're not going to provide it, but I feel that that pressure still is there, that if I don't provide it, they may go someplace else and find somebody else who will provide it, and I think I can provide it at a higher level, or I already have a relationship with this client and and pet. I want to be there for that dog or that cat. or Yeah, I want to be there for them. I don't want to abandon them at this time, Mm -hmm. because these are people who are in need. I mean... They are in need. Yeah, absolutely. On an emotional level. I mean, there's nothing that I wouldn't do to stave off the end of my dog's life on a theoretical level, Mm -hmm. on a practical level. You know, I'd like to think that I'm able to accept (laughs) the reality, but I can absolutely understand someone who is just feeling overwhelmed at the whole thing and can't quite think straight at that moment in the veterinary clinic and in the office. What are some sort of red flags that our listeners could have in their minds? Like, is there anything that they could set up for themselves like as a goal to make sure that like, if this happens, I'm not going to take this action. Or if this happens, I am going to take that action. Or like, what do you suggest our listeners do in order to guard against this possibility? You know, I think that it's challenging for me to lay out a set of what I would say are absolute red flags or lines to not cross, because what we found is that the top two reasons that veterinarians provide feudal care were, one, to provide an opportunity for an owner or a family member to be present for that pet's death. Oh, okay. And I think that, you know, Based on our definitions, we, we would say continuing care during that time didn't really benefit the pet, maybe or maybe not, but absolutely provided a benefit to the client or the pet owner. And I don't think that that type of care is necessarily distressing for veterinarians. Okay. I think that the reason I, I'd say I can't definitively draw a line there is, you know, we sort of pose the rhetorical question of if I'm tasked with providing treatment for a pet for two hours while somebody arrives from work, you know, that's one thing, but it's a different thing if I'm tasked with providing care for three weeks until a child can be home from school on break to be present. So, you know, that's why I say I don't don't know that there's necessarily a clear red flag. Mm-hmm. My suggestion would be to, on the part of both parties, the pet owner and the veterinarian, to really open up the conversation honestly, talk about what their specific goals are and exactly what they think the best course of action is. I think approaching these types of conversations when I've had them with clients, reassuring them that we're, we both want the same thing, right? We both ultimately want 
their pet not to be suffering. Sometimes what the pet owner wants is they, they really don't want to be put in that position at all. It's, it's not fair that their pet is dying and, and they want a pet that is disease free. And I think that we're sympathetic to that. But unfortunately, that's just not a reality that's possible many times. And so if we can come together and recognize that we're both fighting for the same thing, and that's to relieve the suffering of a pet, then I think it's easier to find common ground mm-hmm. and come together as a team and decide, you know, how we're going to proceed. Do you think that when these situations arise, the owner may not be aware of the suffering of their pet? I do think that that's possible. And interestingly, now that you mention it, the third most common reason that veterinarians provided feudal care in our survey was because they believed the owner didn't understand the pet's prognosis. Mm. So I think that there certainly is a component of that. I think that depending on how long a veterinarian has been in practice, they may have different comfort levels talking with owners about suffering. Mm -hmm. Again, this is for me where I find just honest, open communication works the best. And Mm -hmm. I think having a conversation specifically focused on what is suffering, what does suffering look like with a client who's struggling with a decision, having that conversation with a veterinarian is beneficial because I think that we recognize there are many different ways to suffer. You know, suffering doesn't have to just be intractable pain. Suffering can come in many different forms. So I think if I was giving advice to an owner who was concerned that they were maybe going too far, I would encourage them to just have that, ask that question. Do you think my pet is suffering? recognizing that suffering comes in many different forms. Could you list some of those for our listeners so they understand more about what you think constitutes suffering on the part of an animal so that they can maybe expand their vocabulary a little bit? I think a lot of people think they ask, do you think she's in pain? Mm -hmm. And that's what they consider to be suffering. But it sounds to me like you're saying, no, that's one kind of suffering, but there are other other sufferings. What are those? Yeah. So suffering is such an individual experience. Mm -hmm. But what I would say, and and I agree with you, the question I often get is, do you think they're in pain? And oftentimes I don't necessarily think they're in pain, but I do believe they're suffering. So the way that I sort of explain it is, you know, try to imagine the worst flu you've had or the worst cold you've had, and you might not be in in severe pain, but you sure don't feel good. So I kind of look at that and I I would consider, you know, maybe suffering looks like I'm nauseous. I don't want to eat. I'm vomiting. I'm having diarrhea every time I go to the bathroom or I'm straining to urinate or something like that. I can't eat or I I just don't feel like it. So I I think that this is where we sort of get into these gray areas and, and recognize that there are different aspects of suffering. If, if I can't do the things, and not to anthropomorphize too much, but if I can't do the things that I like to do or I want to be able to do in my life, you know, at some point we would say, yeah, yeah that, that's suffering. Yeah. And especially it's one thing if it's for a day or two, you know, diarrhea for a day or two, it's suffering, but it's only a day or two. But if we're at the end of life and Maybe they don't have pain, but they're going to have diarrhea from now until the end. Mm -hmm. 
whenever that is, that's a form of suffering. That certainly would be for me. Yeah. I would not enjoy that. That's not high quality of life. Exactly. I see what you're saying. Or, you know, we can continue treatment, but the side effect of this treatment is going to be nausea. And it's going to, you know, be that as I'm giving you these treatments, you don't feel good. My own anecdotal experience with one of my cats that was sort of eye-opening was she had sort of a still, and we, we never established a definitive diagnosis, but we believe she had some sort of bone marrow cancer and she was transfusion dependent and we were giving her blood transfusions about every two or three weeks and giving her oral medications. And, you know, then it was harder to find her to give her medication. So then it was, well, we're going to, I'm going to lock her in the bathroom so that I know where she is so that I can give her her medications because she needs those medications. And, you know, she doesn't like her dry food anymore. So now I'm going to start giving her treats and such. And finally, one day I sort of woke up and and looked and I said, what am I doing? And, you know, I have my cat locked in the bathroom and she doesn't sit on my lap. She doesn't come out and join the family. I come in there and I give her some medications, sit with her for a little bit of time. And that realization that I, I was at that point continuing treatment for myself and not for her was sort of a moment of clarity. And having been through that and having had hundreds or thousands of conversations with clients and owners about suffering and and end of life, I recognize that sometimes it's really insidious and it's hard to recognize when suffering begins. You know, it's one thing for me to see a pet come in and I have no, I've never seen them before in my life. And I can say, oh, wow, you are in a condition that to me wouldn't be acceptable. But that condition developed over the course of months to potentially years. And so, you know, at what point did that pet begin suffering? I don't know that we can answer that. But I I recognize the challenge of identifying it because it it does happen slowly and, and insidiously. Yeah. And if you continue down the treatment path, you can find yourself, as you did, kind of going oh, wait, my cat's in jail and I'm her jailer. And that's not exactly what she wants or what I want for her. And so it sounds to me like the best advice is to tune in to the experience that you think your pet is having, it sounds like to me, to kind of imagine what it's like on their day-to-day basis so that you can assess, is this good quality of life? Is this the life my dog wants for herself or himself? And um, you have to guess, but at least you get an idea of where you are in that gray area. (laughs) Yeah. How close you are to feudal care versus supportive hospice care. Yeah. And, you know, I think that when I was younger in practice, you know, what we would do or how I would, would coach or counsel owners would say, hey, make yourself a short list of things that you know that your pet really enjoys to do. And if you're finding that, they're unable to do the majority of those things, then maybe the quality of life they're experiencing isn't what we want. And I think that that tool can be useful, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that it captures the nuance that is present in situations where owners are struggling to make a decision about end of life. So I think now an approach that I take that might maybe capture a little bit more of that nuance is to ask owners, If you were writing 
a narrative or if you were writing your pet's story, its life story, what would the final chapters look like? How would you write the death of your pet and sort of try to generate a mental image of what you think a good ending to your pet's story would be and sort of use that as a barometer to, to decide, am I sticking to my pet storyline or narrative or am I straying from the narrative that I think that they would? I love that. That is an excellent piece of advice because these are murky waters. So we can only rely on our own judgment about our pet's life and our experience with them to make these decisions. And telling us a story is something we can all kind of understand. I think human brains are story-oriented, right? Mm -hmm. So I love that. I think this is a good time to take a break. So we're going to listen to some of our sponsors, and we'll be back in a moment with Dr. Peterson to continue this conversation. And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to roll in the grass and warm my belly in the sun. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. The green, grassy, beef liver spiked smell wakes my senses. You may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy, especially when you wet it. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. Everpup traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. Does it roll back time? Of course not. Not really. But it helps me feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm so glad you're giving it to me every day. Because every day I'm so glad to be with you. I'm so grateful to be your dog and for the Everpup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. If your dog has cancer, you need to get a copy of the best-selling animal health book, The Dog Cancer Survival Guide. Because no matter what you've heard, there are always steps that you can take to help your dog fight and maybe even beat cancer. At nearly 500 pages, this comprehensive guide is your complete reference for practical, evidence-based strategies that can optimize the life quality and longevity of your dog. It's written by two of the most respected names in dog cancer, full-spectrum veterinarian Damian Dressler and veterinary oncologist Susan Ettinger. With the Dog Cancer Survival Guide, you'll learn everything that you need to know about conventional treatments, surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation, including how to reduce their side effects. You'll also discover the most effective non-conventional options, including nutraceuticals and supplements and diet, as well as mind-body medicine. 
What I love most about this book, which I've used with my own dog, Kanga, when she was diagnosed with cancer, is how to analyze the options and develop a specific plan for your own dog based on your dog's type of cancer and your dog's age, your financial budget, as well as your personality. You can get the Dog Cancer Survival Guide wherever books are sold, but if you get it direct from the publisher, you will save 10% when you use the offer code, especially for listeners of this podcast. Just go to dogcancerbook.com, and when you check out, use the promo code PODCAST, and you will save 10%. The website again, dogcancerbook.com, and use the promo code PODCAST to save 10%. I want to let you know about an important newsletter. It's called Dog Cancer News. Now, with a name like that, it is not for everyone. But if your dog has cancer, you will want to subscribe. That's because every issue features articles that will be helpful, such as low-carb dog cancer diet recipes, new clinical trials, financial resources to help pay for cancer care, information on supplements, and lots of other helpful info that your veterinarian may not know or have the time to share with you. Also, when you subscribe to Dog Cancer News, you will get a weekly update on the topics covered on this podcast, along with links and resources. So how much does Dog Cancer News cost? Well, today, you can subscribe for free. It's our gift. For a limited time, you can get a full year's subscription for free. No strings attached. Just go to this website to sign up for the newsletter now, dogcancernews.com. It takes less than 10 seconds to subscribe, and it is totally free. Do it now at dogcancernews.com. We're back with Dr. Nathan Peterson discussing futile care in veterinary medicine. Dr. Peterson, are there any resources for veterinarians and then are there any resources for dog lovers that you would recommend they consult if they are facing these sort of really tough decisions and wondering more about like how much is too much? both for the layperson and also for veterinarians to deal with the moral injury they're sustaining as a normal course of doing business. Yeah. In terms of resources to point veterinarians to, unfortunately, there just aren't a lot Mm -hmm. at this point. You know, the conversations around moral distress are becoming more common. And that was one of the goals of our study was to really sort of open up this conversation within the profession, sort of get it out into the light so that people will start talking about it. Right now, veterinarians tend to go to other veterinarians to have these discussions, whether they're veterinarians within the same practice or friends from vet school or something like that. Resources for pet owners, you know, I think that what I would encourage is for pet owners to look for support groups. You know, I think that your podcast is one of them, right? It's it's a place where people can identify others going through a similar experience, they can talk about it. Mm-hmm. And those support groups can be present online. Many times veterinarians will have resources for local in-person support groups and mm-hmm. grief counseling. So I would encourage owners to ask their veterinarian, do you know of any groups that I can reach out to? Or are there people meeting that, that I can talk with about this experience? I love it. Thank you so much for this important work that you're doing and being part of that, opening up this conversation. It sounds to me like you're increasing empathy for 
animals, human and non. And I appreciate that very much. Yeah, thank you. You know, I'm hopeful that, like I said, we generate a conversation. And I think that it's most important, again, that we just recognize that we are all striving for the same goal, and that's to alleviate suffering. And we absolutely want the best thing for your pet, just the same as you do. Of course. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Nathan Peterson. I'll make sure that we have uh, links to the things that we've talked about in the show below, including the links to the actual study itself. And so people can read that if they're interested in. I appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, great. Thank you. And thank you, listener, for being here today. Because this was such a complicated topic, I decided to bring in our producer and licensed vet tech, Kate Baisdow, to break it down a bit. Kate, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me again. Of course. I think your experience, I hear your finches in the background. They're so cute. <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot to put them out of the room this time. So we got a little bird song. That's for- <laughs> okay. It's bird song. Uh, maybe it'll lighten up the topic because. What a heavy, complex topic this is, this concept of, I mean, feudal care itself, that just that phrase is so sad. Yeah. I really appreciate the delicacy with which Dr. Peterson discussed all the different nuances to these situations because you've got so many living beings Mm. that feel and think and experience these traumatic and sad situations and balancing the needs and wants of the pet who's sick. And depending on the condition, it might be something that can definitely be treated or something that maybe can be treated or something that can't be treated and just doing either supportive care or propping them along. And then Balancing all of that is if that isn't bad enough with the owner who loves and adores this pet and has been caring for them for their whole life, trying to wrestle with the grief of maybe losing them and make decisions about what treatment options to pursue or what diagnostics to pursue or whether it's at the end in time for euthanasia. And then on top of that, the veterinarian and the staff who are also looking at this animal and because of their profession and dedication to animals, they've got the Hippocratic oath talking in the back of their head saying first do no harm and also wanting to see this pet feel better and also wanting the owner and the client to feel fulfilled and to feel like they've done everything that they could and that they're making the right choice for their pet. It's hard. It's so murky. And, you know, I couldn't help but keep thinking as as Dr. Peterson was talking about how complex the experience of a dog lover, a pet owner, often is. Because by the time we're in this kind of situation, completely depending on the case, I mean, all of these, everything we talked about today has to be seen as a case-by-case basis. They oh, for sure. aren't really universal rules, right? Mm. Except I think universally, people who love their animals are in shock, in grief, and feel guilty. Like mm. whether it's their fault or not doesn't really matter yep. because animals kick in all of our evolutionary and biological parental instincts. And so just like a a mother will always feel guilty if their child is sick. 
it's hard for us, our primate brains, to look at a dependent animal of another species and say, that animal is completely dependent on me for everything, and now they're sick. It automatically, I think, kicks up guilt in us, and that can really cloud our thinking. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And our ability to just accept the situation as it is. So the veterinarians, the vet techs, they have a certain perspective that's not just medically informed, but also has that emotional distance of like, I can see the situation, you know, from their perspective, possibly more clearly than we can from our perspective as a guilt-ridden primate clutching their baby. <laughs> yeah. And in many cases, the veterinarian and the technicians and other veterinary staff have already seen this movie. Right. They've already seen what happens with a cat in kidney failure. They know how the progression can look. They've probably seen a couple different iterations of it. They've seen that dog in liver failure and what goes on or the dog with osteosarcoma that isn't able to have an amputation. They know what the end picture can look like and have that dread of what is coming. And an owner, no matter how much, even being a veterinary technician, when something's wrong with my own pets, a part of you completely loses rationality. You just want them to feel better. I was the owner who, when my dog's neck really hurt and she was screaming in the middle of the night anytime she moved, I gave her my other dog's pain meds. Mm -hmm. And I walked in the next day to work and I said to the vet, I said, I know, I know, I should not have done this <laughs> because now the vet's not seeing the same picture of the pain that was involved and then it impacted what medications we could give her that day, we had to do a washout from the NSAID that I had given her before we could start her on PRED to really get the problem under control. But in that moment of my pet is screaming in pain, you kind of lose it. Yeah. And that's just a part of being human and loving someone. Right. And so I think my big takeaway was actually that all of us need a lot more compassion in these situations, then maybe we extend to ourselves. Like if you've been listening and you're like, oh my God, I was listening and I was thinking about several pets in my past, pets I've had, pets other people have had, where I think, oh, maybe that's what was going on there. Maybe there was a little bit of feudal care being requested. And I have to really go back to that place of compassion saying, you can't know. You know, not only can you not know because so there's the human primate just wanting the pain to end for their little, their little dependent. And then there's also this positive mindset that at least here in the United States of America, we are inculcated with from birth of like, we can do it, right? Like, yep, there's always that hope because there's always outliers to everything. There's always the exception to the rule. And we always hope that our dog is going to be the lucky one that has the miraculous recovery. And sometimes those do happen. Yeah. And they do. Yeah. But you have to come into those decision moments, even if you do end up still deciding to pursue the heroic effort, you still have to have that rational thought in the back of your mind and recognize that this probably won't work. Right. And I think that's a little bit healthier than just diving in, being absolutely sure it'll work. Having realistic expectations, 
you don't have to get rid of hope because hope is a great thing to have. Oh, yes. And sometimes everything does work out miraculously well. But I think we all need to get better when looking at our pets and ourselves for medical decisions. Think about both what we want to happen and what is likely to happen and then see where those things overlap and try to make the best decision for us and our pet in that moment. Right. And then later when we're beating ourselves up because it didn't go the way that we wanted it to, if that's the case, to let ourselves off the hook. Mm-hmm. Because in the end, we all make the best decisions we know how at the time with the information we have. And that's a fact. Because if you're in denial about something, sorry, you know, like you can wake up like Dr. Peterson did with his cat where all of a sudden he's like, wait a minute, I'm my cat's jailer. Like, this is not what she wants Mm -hmm. for her life. What am I doing? Yeah. He could look back and say, oh, I'm a terrible person, but that's not healthy either. Got to give yourself a break. He was doing the best he knew. And as he said, when we were chatting after recording, all of those decisions that we make, even if later we think that they were the wrong ones, we make them out of love. And our pets know that. And right. Yeah. Don't you think our pets know that, Kate? I think our pets know that we love them. Oh, they absolutely know. For sure. Yeah. Sometimes they think we're foolish. (laughs) (laughs) Like when I ask my dog to walk down the pier and walk by the boats, and she's like, this is not safe, Mom. (laughs) But they love us, and they know wholeheartedly that we love them. Yeah, I agree. Well, thanks, Kate, for helping me talk through that really potent conversation with Dr. Peterson. I know that we have a lot of resources to offer people in our Facebook group. Lots of people there who understand exactly where you are if you're at this stage where you're wondering, what should I be doing for my dog? So join us. You can go to dogcancersupport.com and that'll redirect you to our Facebook group. Or if you're on Facebook already, you can search for Dog Cancer Support and we'll come right up. Just click to join. Don't forget to like us on all the socials and subscribe to our newsletter, Dog Cancer News. That's on dogcancernews.com. You can go right there and sign up. And uh, it strikes me that there will be people who have questions after this. So let me give you our listener line. Our listener line is 808-868-3200. If you have a question for a veterinarian, We'll get it answered for you in a future show. Give us a call and leave your recording. 808-868-3200. I'm Molly Jacobson. And for all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, I'm wishing you and your dog a very warm aloha. Thank you for listening to Dog Cancer Answers. If you'd like to connect, please visit our website at dogcanceranswers.com or call our listener line at 808-868-3200. And here's a friendly reminder that you probably already know. This podcast is provided for informational and educational purposes only. It's not meant to take the place of the advice you receive from your dog's veterinarian. Only veterinarians who examine your dog can give you veterinary advice or diagnose your dog's medical condition. Your reliance on the information you hear on this podcast is solely at your own risk. If your dog has a specific health problem, contact your veterinarian. Also, please keep in mind that veterinary information can change rapidly. Therefore, some information may be out of date. Dog Cancer Answers is a presentation of Maui Media in association with Dog Podcast Network. Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. 
Right now on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast.